Good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel live stream. Um, yeah, it's a blessing to be able to share the Word of God with you today and uh, have one announcement. We have a couple more weeks of lockdown and restrictions, it looks like, so we're going to start doing the Friday night Word study via Zoom. So I'll have that link sent out, God willing, well, before Friday, um, through the admin email. So if you're interested to check that out, please come along for that. So uh, we'll be in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, if you want to turn there, and let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to share your word, to draw near to you, to seek you, to acknowledge that you do fight our battles, that the battle is the Lord's, that you are king and sovereign over all, that we, we really have nothing to fear because you are with us. Nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can keep us from following you in obedience because you have all power in heaven and on earth. Your throne is above all and you've created all things. For your pleasure they have been created and we exist. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your presence. And we confess, Lord, that in ourselves there dwells no good thing that we are weak and uh, frail sinners, and it's only by your grace through faith we are saved. And we thank you that it's you who enables us to stand, and having done all to stand, that we can walk in obedience, we can uh, be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might, because you are strong, and you strengthen us. And so we, we glorify you, Lord. We thank and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2. I don't know if you've played golf, but I've played a bit over the years, and it's a bit harrowing sometimes, a bit nerve-wracking walking up to that first tee when you haven't hit a ball that day, and there's a gallery of people watching, and, and uh, sometimes you, you do okay, and other times you just, it's a bit embarrassing. You want to get off that tee as fast as possible. And by experience, I've learned that uh, you can't judge another golfer by their attire or the clubs they're swinging or the balls they're using or... Uh, if they're wearing a copper bracelet or not, because buying the best balls or clubs does not eliminate that slice or that hook, it will be there. And there's many times I've had people, been paired up with people who are talking about their ability to drive the ball 300 meters or to, to shoot a particular score, and their bragging is shifting quickly to either four when they hit it way off track or a grunt of displeasure as the ball trickles you know, 10 meters in front of the tee box. Uh, and I've, I've played with players who, like a 12-year-old girl, who just blew us all off the map. She was so skilled. And this old-timer who was twice our age, um, who just was a magician around the greens, it's like they didn't need to say anything. They didn't need to flaunt their, their, their stats or their abilities or their scores. They let their game do the talking. And as Christians, that ought to be the case, that we don't need to talk up our faith or what we've done for God or how much we've sacrificed or served. Really, our lives are to demonstrate that, our love of God, our faith in Christ, and uh, to show by our lives that we love Him, that we love Jesus. You know, there's no, there's no style points in golf for having a pretty swing, for having an orthodox swing. It's really just who has the, it's the fewest strokes possible to sink that ball 
into the cup. That's the game. And being professional, it doesn't mean you're perfect. And the same's true for us as Christians who are admittedly sinners who need a Savior. We need forgiveness. We need help. We need strength because in us there dwells no good thing. And having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are now enabled to be spiritually fruitful. And our lives will be more than talk, more than just talking a talk, but really to live out, to demonstrate the love for God and others. Love, as we've seen in James, it does not show partiality to anyone. Saving faith results in trust and obedience to God. And it will be obvious because it's God's work in and through our lives. And it doesn't really matter, like, uh, okay, if you played golf for any amount of time, there could be that one great shot that you did, and you can talk about that. But really, how is your game today? How are you walking with Jesus today? Are those, like my clubs, they've been sitting dusty for quite some time. How is your walk with Jesus? Are you walking with him? And this is really a question just for you uh, to answer, and it will be your life that shows that answer. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you're investing time or money in something, you want what's beneficial, what's profitable for you. We desire what's favorable and advantageous. James begins the chapter with uh, saying we ought not to have faith in Jesus with respect to persons. And he trots out a real yet practical, I mean, uh, a hypothetical yet a very real example of a person who claims to have faith without works to justify it. And James will show that not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is profitable faith. Having received the love of God, we ought to be changed by it. We ought to freely give it as it has been freely given to us. When you climb into your car, you insert the key and you turn it, the battery starts the engine. And if you do this and there's not even a click, it's likely that that battery is dead. Now, a genuine battery connected under the bonnet, it's not going to profit you if it's drained of all power, right? That makes sense. Auto shops do not sell batteries without power. It's like you're not saving any money by going into an auto parts store and buying a dead battery for $100 when the new ones that are fully charged cost $300 because that $100 battery, it's not going to run your car. It's not going to accomplish any profitable purpose. So James is asking, what does it profit you for anyone to say, I have faith in God. They see a brother or sister in need. They're starving, they're naked, and instead of giving them food and clothes, they say, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, and not help them. That's empty sentiment. Those words are not going to help them. Those words would not profit at all. Now, a battery, it stores energy to be used in profitable ways, like turning on the car or uh, making the lights operational, listening to the radio, you can use the heater and the aircon. All the electrical systems of the car work because the battery is receiving, it's, it has the, the charge and it's being uh, charged by the alternator. Uh, 
Now, a dead battery, it can't do anything profitable. Faith that does not work is just as useless. Just like we need a battery that has power to start the car so we can actually use the car. Faith in Jesus, it's necessary, it's profitable for the salvation of our souls. Faith without works is dead. That means lifeless, powerless, and unprofitable for us in this life and the next. The Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it well. Workless faith is a worthless faith. A a fundamental principle we have to understand is that we have been saved by grace through faith, not by works. It's by faith in Jesus alone that we're born again and made new creations. And there's no amount of labor to keep the law of Moses that could make a person saved or make them righteous before God or acceptable. The law of Moses, it could only condemn people. With the atoning sacrifice of Christ, he established a new covenant, a law of faith that makes the old obsolete. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans 3, 19 through 28. It's a bit of an extended passage, but it lays down the groundwork of our salvation is by faith alone, not by works. Romans 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Paul explains that the purpose, a purpose of the law given was to show man his guilt, to show him his need for forgiveness, to silence him from vainly attempting to justify himself by saying, look at all the good things I've done, because that's not the way you can be justified. That's not the way you're made righteous. Righteousness comes through faith in God. So the righteousness is not, because even if someone claims to have kept the law, you, if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. So your best attempts are merely that. It's an attempt, um, and therefore you are not righteous by your efforts. Salvation, forgiveness, being justified, it's by faith. It's received by faith as a gift from God. In Luke 17, 6, Jesus said if his disciples had faith the size of a mustard seed, they could command a tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. So we see the sm- a small, small amount of genuine faith. It has great divine power. It's able to move mountains of unforgiveness and empower us to love others. But faith without works, it's dead. And works without faith, those are dead too. We recently studied this in Hebrews 6.1. 
Uh, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Works as an attempt to gain favor with God are dead. They have no profit. They do not profit you to earn forgiveness, righteousness, or salvation. Salvation is received by grace through faith. Matthew Poole wrote this, and hopefully this can clarify the meaning. He does not say faith is dead without works, lest it should be thought that the works were the cause of the life of faith, but faith without works is dead, implying that works are the effects and signs of the life of faith. If you have living, saving faith, there will be evidence of that faith in your life by works that please God, works that are in obedience to Him. Just like a battery sparks to life when you turn that key in the ignition, And you're like, the battery's working because the car started. We are justified by faith in Jesus. Works justify the claim of having faith. James 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? James figures one is saved. There's always one, right? He says, you have faith in Jesus and I have works. See everything that I've done. In Luke 18, Jesus describes a Pharisee who prayed with himself and thanked God. Like, I'm not like other sinners, like extortioners, adulterers, like this tax collector. And he trots out all his sacrifices. He says, I, uh, I tithe twice a week, I mean, excuse me, I fast twice a week, I offer these sacrifices, I tithe of all my possessions, and that man's approach to God is contrasted with the tax collector who says because of his, his humility and his brokenness over his sin, he could not even bring, his, bring himself to raise his eyes to heaven, but just cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, Jesus said the tax collector went home justified because he humbled himself by faith in God, unlike the Pharisee. The Pharisee had works, but he trusted in himself he was righteous. He did not have faith in Jesus, thus his works were dead and unprofitable. They could not profit him at all. It doesn't really matter if the one who James is addressing here is one who professes faith without works or a self-righteous person who is pleased by their efforts and will point to their works to prove they have faith or to say, hey, I have faith because look at my works. Real faith is always evidenced by works. James says, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. To demonstrate faith without works is impossible. James is asking for an impossibility here. Real faith will always be accompanied by works. I remember a humorous arrest on a, the TV show Cops years back where there was a suspect and the cop was addressing the suspect and instead of running away, as he had been doing previously, since he was caught, he was playing dead. So he was talking to him and the man was just holding his breath and just laying there. And so the cop decided to do a sternum rub to, uh, to see if there was any evidence of life and the man quickly started squirming around and, and so he was cuffed and read his rights, and 
so that sign of life was visible. Like, okay, this guy is alive. He is pretending. So he's, he is conscious and I can read him's rights. He would not have done that if the man was devoid of life. There'd been no reason to cuff him, to read his rights to him. James opposes this idea that my, my faith is personal, thus private, as if works are irrelevant. Living faith in Jesus that saves, it's always revealed in obedient action to Jesus. The more personal your faith is, the more your life will be impacted, the more pronounced and evident it will be to all that your faith is genuine. One person isn't gifted in faith while another is gifted in works. Real faith will always be evidenced by the things we say and do in obedience to Jesus. When we repent of our sin, it's in obedience to him. He's shown us that we're in sin. And we've said the wrong thing and our attitudes have been wrong. The one who prides himself in his good works, he's really boasting in dead works that cannot save without faith. James is saying, you identify as a monotheist and a Christian? Great. Even the demons believe and tremble. Simultaneously, they are all headed to hell for eternal destruction. Demons along with people believe there's one God, yet they do not possess saving faith. If we place our faith in Jesus, it must be in him alone. We can't just have belief in every God and hope that we're covering our bases. Faith in God is exclusive through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Works are not essential to faith. They are evidence of faith. And not all belief is the same. The demons believe God exists, and it's evidenced by their trembling before him. But notice this, they're trembling, they they realize that he's real, they believe he's real, and they believe he will judge them. But they will not obey him, they will not submit to him, they cannot repent, their sin cannot be atoned for. Because they believe in God, They refuse to obey him. They refuse to place their faith in him in humble obedience. And thus, their their belief does not profit them. There's a lot of things that we believe that we are not really willing to die over, like what kind of cheese tastes best, right? You wouldn't want to die on that one. Um, we, We buy a car because we believe at the time that it's It's a good value for money, only to be shown later. It was not really a great investment. Uh, We believe an article because it makes sense to us. We read it, and we're like, okay, I'm weighing these options, and I believe it's true. But if if it was a matter of life and death, we'd just say, well, it's really irrelevant. Uh, It doesn't really matter in the big scope of things, so it's nothing I'm going to argue over. It's nothing I'm going to get all bent out of shape about. Saving faith in Jesus is more than belief in his existence or that Jesus did miracles. Living faith is revealed of those who hear the words of Jesus and do them. They're obedient to what Jesus has said. James says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's likely that a foolish man does not want to know at all, has no desire to be told that he has been in the wrong. The faith that they've prided themselves in, he does not want to hear the suggestion that it's unprofitable or worthless to him. It's kind of like the guy who who drops a few grand on a a ring or a piece of jewelry and goes in to the shop to have it appraised, and they say, oh, this is actually all fake. You, You wasted your money. 
It's not worth anything. It's got to be worth something. I've had it for all these years. And I was told that, you know, and here's my certificate. Here's um, something that says it's legitimate and real. And the guy's like, hey, I'm sorry, but it's just, it's fake. You were lied to. You were cheated. No one wants to be in that position where you were sold something and you bought into it and it was incorrect. Can we be like this? That you really don't, okay, I, I spent this much on it, that's what it's worth. I really don't want to hear any criticism about my purchase. Well, God's gracious enough to tell us when our faith is worthless, when it's unprofitable to us. We don't want to be called a fool. We certainly don't want to look like a fool. Now, the Bible talks about the fool in this way. David declares, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. A biblical definition of a fool is one who lives as God does not exist and ignores what God says. It's just, if you read the book of Proverbs, that comes through very clearly. Solomon says in Proverbs 18 too, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. One could say that a fool has a closed mind and an open mouth. A fool, a fool refuses to humble self to be corrected, will deflect godly exhortation, and makes excuses. Jesus says that a foolish man hears his words, but does not do them. Who among us wants to admit that we've been a fool and that our faith is worthless, that it's lifeless, that it's without profit? Belief in doctrine, it does not justify us. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and saving faith works. There will be evidence of obedience to Christ through that faith. Picking up in James 2, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. James uses an example that would have been familiar to his Jewish audience, that of Abraham, his faith in God, how it was demonstrated by obedience to God, right? The faith that was the, the, the impetus for him to do what God said because he believed him. His works and his faith, they combined together to perfection. And God declared Abraham righteous on the basis of his faith alone. Verse 23 in James, it quotes from Genesis 15, 6. This verse, it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That was said before Ishmael or Isaac were even born. But it was fulfilled later. It was demonstrated that faith was made clear to everyone when God told him to take his only son Isaac to go to the Mount Moriah on the mountain he would show him, and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. That's in Genesis 22. Abraham was justified by faith, declared innocent apart from the works of the law. Remember, Abraham lived before the law. The law was not even written yet. Uh, and he, he, his faith was imputed to him as righteousness. God gave, excuse me, God imputed righteousness to him on the basis of his faith, his trust in God. Faith by itself does not profit. It was faith in God that moved Abraham to obey 
God said, I'm going to give you a son in your old age. Through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He believed him. And then God told him to sacrifice his son. And as he bound him, as he, he picked up the knife to slay his son, he believed, okay, God's able to even raise my son from the dead. And then God stopped him. It was like a test to, uh, he says, now I know that you fear me. And he did not have to slay his son because he offered him in obedience to God in faith. And he's the only person in the Old Testament referred to as the friend of God. In Isaiah 41, 8, it says, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Do you make a distinction between a friend and an acquaintance? Where an acquaintance is someone you know or know of. They may not even know you, but you're aware of them and you know their name. You know a little bit about them. But a friend is something different, where there's a mutual level of respect and love and a knowledge that they know me. So I can call them a friend because we know each other. It's mutual. It's on the basis of mutual love. And it would be a bit presumptuous for anyone to call God their friend when God is, his throne is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. But now God calls Abraham my friend. So God's owning that relationship with him, saying, this guy, he loves me. He's my friend. First half of Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times. In calling Abraham his friend, God was affirming that. That guy loves me. He keeps my word. In real love, it's more than words. It's more than just platitudes or empty, empty words. It's, it's action taken for the benefit of others because you have affection for someone. You desire their good. You desire to bless and to help them. God demonstrated his love for the world by sending his son Jesus. Jesus demonstrated his love for sinners by dying on Calvary for our sins as our substitute. God was already a friend to Abraham, but then Abraham showed he was a friend to God by obeying him. Webster defined a friend as this. This is really cool. Attached to another by affection, one who entertains for another sentiments of esteem, respect, and affection, which lead him to desire his company and to seek to promote his happiness and prosperity. It's like, that guy loves my company. That guy loves to be with me. And that was God's view of Abraham because he obeyed him. He trusted him. And the way God owned friendship with Abraham and related to him at that level of a mutual friend, we see Jesus relate with those who followed him. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to John 15, starting in verse 13. John 15, 13. It says, Greater love has no, man, no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Jesus laid down his life on Calvary, showing he was a friend to all, that he desired the benefit for everyone, that they would repent of their sins, that they would trust in him for salvation, and re receive eternal life as that free gift. 
And he says, you are my friends if you do the things I command you. And he's not making demands upon people like a boss does to a, or like an owner did to a slave or a dictator to his subjects or a general commanding a soldier, uh, but as a friend. That's the way he's speaking to us, a friend who desires our good, a friend who has revealed his love to us. And we would do things for our friends. We will do things for our mates. And Jesus has done everything for us. And so as a friend, he speaks to us and he says, you can be my friend. You are my friend if you do the things that I say. And what does he say? Love one another. Servants obey their masters. Soldiers obey the commanding officer. Citizens, they observe the rules of the government. Right now, we're, we're having remote church uh, services because that's the, uh, I guess, the, the order of the New South Wales government. And if we would obey these restrictions, how much more ought disciples ought to obey Jesus who says, you are my friends if you do what I say. With that example of Father Abraham, James asserts, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. This statement is in no way contradictory that we are saved by faith alone. The points hammered home that a profession or a claim of faith in Christ being alone, that means without works, it's dead. It cannot profit. Pointing it out demonstrates the grace of God so we can realize my faith, it's not profitable. It's not accomplishing anything. If my faith is real, it will be accompanied and evidenced by works obedience to Christ, loving one another, desiring it and working towards that end. Knowing that your car has a dead battery, that it cannot start, that it will not get you to your desired destination, uh, that will prompt a person to get a new one, to charge it so they can use their car, right? A person can buy a car from a wrecker they never expect to drive. They're buying it to part it out, Maybe it's like a future restoration project, and it's just sitting under a tarp that's getting dusty in a garage somewhere or out in a paddock. The owner doesn't care. They have that car. They can say, I'm an owner of this car, but that car can't drive anywhere. It doesn't have a battery. It doesn't even have a drivetrain. It's just bits and pieces, but they have a title. But that car, is it going to profit them to actually go from here to there? And our faith can be like that. There are many proud owners of classic cars that are in a garage that cannot be driven, maybe just for looking at. There's a lot of so-called Christians who have, have dead faith in storage somewhere. It's powerless to transport them to heaven. Could that be you? It's entirely possible you could be pointing to dead works to justify a living faith, like that Pharisee who refused to hear the call of Jesus and respond. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And faith was made complete by Abraham's obedience to what God said. It was fulfilled in that. It was completed, perfected. 
Continuing in James 2, 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James gave a second example of living faith, which was likely a shock to the Jewish audience. I mean, this is a big contrast from Father Abraham to Rahab the harlot uh, and a Gentile an inhabitant of Jericho. Prostitution may be an age-old occupation, but among the Jews it was not respected, it was not viewed as honorable. She lived in Jericho when the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan into Canaan. Joshua sent two spies into Jericho, and um, they ended up lodging with Rahab on the wall. Her house was on the wall, and the king in Joshua 2 says, heard that two Hebrews had come into the city, and he demanded that she turn over the men. But instead of doing so, she hid them on her roof and said, oh, they, yeah, they came, but they've gone. I don't know where they are. In fact, they've gone that way. And she intentionally uh, led them away from where the men were staying. She did that because she believed in God. If you turn in your Bibles to what Rahab said in Joshua 2, 8, we can read this together. Joshua 2, verse 8. It says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord... Since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Rahab acknowledged that she and all the inhabitants of Jericho of the land had heard of God's great deliverance of the Hebrews who God delivered from the land of Egypt 40 years ago on the other side of the Jordan. How God had dried up the Red Sea and brought them out. They heard about all this, how they defeated the kings, Og and Sihon. And she says, I know that your God, he's God of heaven and of earth, and he's already given you the land. So she made a request of them. And she says, when you guys take this land, please spare me and my family. I've helped you out. Please help me. Please save me. And the men, and she's saying this behind the wall of this massive fortress, Jericho, this impenetrable place, it seemed, with, with walls and gates. And she believed the Lord's already given them the land. So she was begging for her life. And the men agreed with conditions. They said, okay, you and your family will be saved if you don't leave the house. So you need to be in the house you need to keep our plan secret, and the scarlet cord that you've let us down from the wall with, you need to keep that in plain sight on the outside, and then you'll be spared, you and your family. And when the city ultimately fell by the miraculous power of God, the walls fell inward. Though her house was on the wall, there was a portion that was preserved. She and her family were brought out and saved. 
So James, he shows how Rahab demonstrated her faith in God uh, by welcoming the messengers into her home, how she hid them, and how she sent them away to safety. Her living faith resulted in her salvation. We read about in Joshua 6, 25. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So her faith in God, she shared it with her family who stayed with her. And then she was brought into uh, the camp of Israel. It's interesting. Two men went to spy out the city. But here, how are they referred to? And how does James refer to them? As messengers. It's pretty neat. Messengers sent by God to offer salvation to those who would believe. And Rahab was one who believed. And it resulted in her salvation. Incredibly, Matthew 1.5, it tells us that Rahab, she was the mother of Boaz, who was the mother of, who was the uh, father of Obed, then Jesse, then David, who became king and ultimately went to the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who descended from her. What a beautiful picture of how a living faith in God results in salvation, redemption, and eternal life through Jesus Christ. James concludes, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. A living body it will have signs of life, like breathing, speaking, walking around. When Jesus went to Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. There was evidence of his death because of the smell that was contained within that tomb. And Jesus addressed Martha in John eleven twenty three. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus went to the tomb. He told them to roll the stone away. Then he cried out, Lazarus, come forth after praying to God. God, show these people that you have sent me. And Lazarus comes forth, walked out of the grave, bound in grave's clothes, and many people believed on him. Their belief caused them to follow Jesus, to joyfully pro proclaim the things that he did, the things that they had seen. And more excited than they had seen a miracle or seen the sign, they rejoiced in that it identified Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who gives life to those dead and dead in sins. So a tree that's dead, there's many trees that are standing there, but they're dead. They will not grow. They will not produce leaves or fruit. Living faith is like the root that causes that tree to grow and be fruitful. Some trees, they go dormant in winter. I was taking a walk the other day, and we're looking at some trees, and we're like, are those alive or dead? And you can tell a bit if it's a deciduous tree, if the limbs are still flexible. And when spring rolls around, you'll have evidence that that tree is really alive. And even a dead tree, I mean a living tree, can have dead branches that need to be pruned off. And Jesus says that he's the vine, we're the branches. Sometimes those branches get dead wood, and he'll trim them off. And even the live ones will be trimmed, so they'll be more fruitful. So they're, they're, the evidence is that spiritual fruit born from our lives because the Holy Spirit in us, He is working, 
He is moving and accomplishing His will. We all have that need to be nurtured and guided by God who loves us. Living faith is completed or made perfect by obedience to Him. Now, is it strange to you that James would write this letter to professing believers, to people who claim to have faith in God? We, we can be quite content. So it's like, I believe. We're like, good, good, that's great. I'm glad you believe. I feel comforted now uh, that you, you are on the right track. Or someone that's done great works for God. We can say, well, that must be evidence of faith. But really, God knows the hearts. And if you think it's odd that James would be warning believers about this, well, maybe you think this is irrelevant to you as well as a believer. But remember, every dead tree that's standing, every dead tree that's fallen over, it was once alive. Every car with a dead battery, it may have traveled tens, hundreds, even hundreds of thousands of kilometers before it needed replacement. That car now sits idle, and it's good for us all to look at ourselves and say, Lord, search my heart and consider, is your faith in Christ accompanied by obedience to Him now? And this isn't for us to judge concerning others, but like when I was in eighth grade, we were doing something on genetics and learning about uh, how that worked and how some people could... Because of their genetics, some people could taste this litmus paper and other people couldn't. And so we were all given a little strip of paper and we were to put it on our tongue and some people could taste it. Other people were like, what is this? Uh, and, and I could taste it. And it didn't taste good. So I was like, oh, I don't want to keep that in my mouth. But everyone else, some other people that could, could not taste that flavor, they're like, I don't really notice. And you can't take that test for someone else. You can only take it for yourself. And then you know... I can taste it or I can't taste it. So you allow the Word of God to test you, to show you, like, is my life, I say I have faith, but is it a living faith? Is it a saving faith? Is it a profitable faith that's accompanied by works in obedience to Jesus? Because saving, living faith will always be accompanied by that, those works, even like the life of Abraham and Rahab. Don't put your faith in dead works. Don't put your faith in a profession, a trust in your profession of faith long ago. Put your faith to work in following Jesus and loving God, one another, and one another according to his word. God called Abraham his friend because his faith was demonstrated by obedience. And may we do all that Jesus asks us and show ourselves to be his friends. You don't need to work to prove to other people, or to God even, that your faith is real. Real faith in Jesus will be evidenced by works that are pleasing to Him. They proclaim the truth. God has spoken, and may we receive that word and walk in it joyfully. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the correction that you give us, for the insights, and thank you that uh, your word is... It's a message of hope. It's a message that's encouraging, that we can rejoice in, that you are willing to, to point out our, our dead faith so that it could be replaced with a living faith, a saving faith, a faith that works. Thank you, Lord, for these examples of Abraham and Rahab and how you brought salvation to them. You imputed righteousness to Abraham because of his faith.
that Rahab demonstrated her faith in practical ways and how your salvation, it's so evident, Lord, that you love us, that you want us to know you, you want us to follow you. You haven't left us in the dark. You've come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he sent the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can know God and make your name known. And I pray, Lord, you would be glorified through our lives that we would uh, produce those good works from faith, that they wouldn't be dead works and we wouldn't have dead faith. But thank you, Lord, you've made us alive and may we rejoice and praise and thank you for all that you are and all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.